apologies for my slightly croaky voice. It's not COVID. I'm still actually in the two months post COVID. So I know it's not COVID. I've done all the tests. I have a little chest infection. If I, <laughs> I know, like, oh, I just really wanted the sympathy. But I realized that um, I sound very low. So uh, I thought I'd let you know why. Um, and if I cough, that's why. Um, but anyway, so I, if we haven't met, my name is Ruth. Um, I'm part of the team here. And we, this morning, are continuing in our series looking at streams in the wasteland. And so far, we've looked at the reality of our thirst. What does it mean to be thirsty? Um, and what does it mean to uh, find this thirst met in the person of Jesus? And the invitation that we found then was, was an invitation to receive the cleansing living water of God and then through repentance to know his healing and his transformation. And today we're going to be looking at how we can experience this living water even in times and places which feel cracked and parched. How even when we experience seasons of pain and challenge, maybe seasons of grief and disappointment or suffering in our life, there is an invitation to know God even in the midst of that brokenness. And the question is, how is it possible to know that light can shine even in the blackest of blacks? How can we know ourselves held and loved, cherished and beloved, even in the depths of suffering and pain, to know those streams of living water flowing in the wasteland and in the de deserts? And the passage we're going to be using to, to look at that is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's Paul writing to the people of Corinth. This is a community of people who are walking through some of the most severe persecutions. They are facing death and imprisonment, beating just for their faith. And Paul's letters were written to the early church. They are about what it means to be a follower of Christ. What does it mean to live in Christian community? And what is the church really all about? And one of the themes that Paul writes a lot about is how to be a people of faith, hope, and love, even in the midst of trials and persecution. So 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal." Now, I'm sure you've all heard of, of this um, art of, of Japanese pottery, kintsingu. Um, we like it. We use it a lot. It's this, um, there's a little image here if you don't know what it is. It's a beautiful form of Japanese art that takes a piece of pottery that has been broken and then fixes it using a lacquer that is mixed with gold or silver. And the end product is both, once again, useful, but it's also beautiful. And indeed, within the Japanese culture, it's believed to be even more beautiful. 
um, because the, as it is woven back together, the breakage and repair are treated as part of the history of the object rather than something to be disguised. This means that they are embracing the flaws and imperfections to make something stronger and even more beautiful. Now, it's a lovely image of Christian redemption, and we use it quite a lot. You might have heard it in this church and other churches. It's lovely, isn't it? It's just it's lovely. But I've always kind of really struggled with it a little bit. And the reason is because I have, in my own heart at times, heard this story and interpreted this message that means that somehow there is a necessity to be put back together and made whole before you can be useful or even beautiful. And there have been times in my life when I feel much more like I am still the broken pieces of pottery on the floor rather than a beautifully put back together piece of pottery. And so the question I ask God in those moments is, am I too broken? Am I just useless shards on the floor waiting to be put back together, waiting to be made whole again? And naturally, of course, the answer is both yes and no. Yes, we are all of us broken shards of pottery on the floor. And we will only see the fullness of the repair, the conclusion of our redemption in eternity when we stand before Jesus and are bathed fully in his light and glory. But also, no, we have been put back together. We have been welcomed into the family of God, an adopted son or daughter, made a new creation, redeemed and repaired, walking the journey of sanctification. And it's through our cracks and our flaws that the glory of God shines brightest. It is in our weakness that he is strong. God uses us, weak, fragile, broken vessels, jars of clay, to reveal his love, his glory, so that there can be no doubt that the power is from God and has little to do with us and how great we are or aren't. And so Paul writes in that passage from Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And the treasure that we have is the light of the knowledge of God's glory. The treasure is our welcome into the family of God, our deliverance into the kingdom of light. It is a treasure for ourselves, and it is a treasure for the world. The treasure is the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it exists in us, jars of clay. And that phrase, jars of clay, was a very common sort of slang colloquial metaphor used in the ancient world as a reference to the fallibility and weakness of humanity. And Paul is saying really clearly, in these fragile, weak, corrupt human bodies lives the very truth of the glory of Christ. We, jars of clay, that are weak and fallible, that mess up, that are caught in evil and sin, are the vessels that hold the very glory of God. This section um, begins, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And this is a direct reference to the creation story. This image, in the beginning, into the chaos and darkness of pre-creation, God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. There was not, and then there was. There was only darkness, and then there was light. 
And Paul is taking this big kind of cosmic shaking moment and then he's saying that God, who said let light shine out of darkness, made that same light, his light, to shine in our hearts into the chaos and darkness of our own hearts, our lives, God shines his light. And so John writes in one of his letters, we love because he first loved us. And Paul writes elsewhere, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait until we have all of our stuff together. He doesn't wait until we are no longer sinners, no longer living in darkness, all perfectly put together, useful and beautiful and looking good. No, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still caught in sin, Christ reached out for us. While we are still trapped in chaos and darkness, God shines his light into our hearts that we might know the glory of the love of God. While we are still broken pieces of pottery on a dirty floor, Christ reaches down into our mess and picks us up. As the psalmist writes, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. And so this is all true. And then Paul goes on to write, we are, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And it's a really interesting collection of kind of pairings of words. Pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And there's a kind of parallel here in each of these. While the first words are in themselves pretty bad, that's a pretty tough set of words, they're not mortal. So there's a sense of being pressed in upon, but not totally crushed, or struck down, but not destroyed. There's still space for hope in those first words. But the second is total annihilation. And it's like Paul is saying, there may come, and indeed there may now be times and ways in which you are persecuted, pressed in upon, struck down, but there is still hope. It's not the end of the story. Hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And I'm sure that I am not the only one in this room to feel like you know something of what those verses mean. Maybe it's a time in the past, or maybe it's how you walked in this morning, how you are feeling right now. That feeling that you are hard-pressed on every side. And maybe the idea that you might not be destroyed feels a little bit like a pipe dream. I know that feeling whether it's worries about work or your family or your health, whether it's anxiety or stress, whether you're living in a season of real disappointment or grief, that feeling of being pressed in upon on every side. And I feel like this is an important moment for us to pause this morning and to say that, that there are people in this room who feel that way. You might feel that way.
And that in the midst of it, there is an invitation for us to lift our gaze, to see the hope. Hard pressed, but not crushed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Never abandoned, never forsaken. There's some verses in Isaiah that um, I've held on to over the years in seasons like that. They're from Isaiah 43, where the prophet says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And here's the thing, there isn't anywhere a promise that the storms won't come. The promise isn't that the waves won't touch you or that the flames can't reach you. It's that even in the midst of the rivers, you won't be swept away. You'll be able to keep your footing. It's that even when walking through the fire, the flames will not set you ablaze. They will not destroy you. Jesus didn't say, come and follow me, and I promise you a lot of fairy cakes, butterflies, and perpetual sunshine. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life for the sake of others. Love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. And in the middle of the storm... Even when the battle is raging, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so the invitation for us today isn't, I'm afraid to say, immediate rescue from the fire. It's the promise of God protecting you from the flames. It's the promise of the presence of God with you in the storm. That even when we seem to be in the wasteland, there is a promise of streams of living water. And Paul uses a kind of odd phrase to talk about, um, to describe suffering. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary troubles, light afflictions. And I guess we might read that and think, well, clearly Paul doesn't know anything about suffering. He's only dealing with momentary light afflictions. But just a couple of chapters later in the same letter, Paul writes this. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pickled with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open seas. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews. He does go on a bit. In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I think it's fair to say that Paul understood suffering. He knew what real suffering was. So why does he say it's light and momentary? And the first thing is a reminder here for us about how our perspective changes our understanding. Paul is talking about the difference between the here and now experience of life and the future eternity that is our ultimate destiny. 
And importantly, Paul isn't minimizing the reality of his pain. He freely confesses that he is not untouched by feelings of despair, but an awareness of being afflicted and persecuted. And it is only when compared to the eternal glory that awaits him that he views his suffering as light and momentary. And secondly, and perhaps most importantly, our suffering can be perceived as light because Paul is comparing it to the reality, comparing the reality of our suffering in contrast to the internal, internal work God is doing. So Paul is taking the internal work that God is doing in our lives and comparing it to the reality of our suffering. Paul writes in Romans, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And this is one of those moments when we have to accept that things don't always make sense. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Why? Not because the suffering is necessary, or because the suffering is willed by God, but because in that place, God meets with us in glory. Because in that place, we see something of the fullness of the character of God, and we know him as our provider and sustainer, our comfort, and we are brought closer into intimacy with him. When we experience suffering in that place of pain, we turn to God and meet him there. What happens is this remarkable experience of redemption. It's like Paul is saying, take on the one hand the suffering that you are experiencing. And on the other hand, take the work of redemption that God is doing in you. And the experience of his glory that you're being welcomed into. And you will find that the scales are not balanced. One day, through the eyes of eternity, the suffering will seem as if it was light and momentary. Dwarfed and overwhelmed by the love and glory of God. And so the challenge that Paul is laying before us is to ask ourselves the question, where are we looking? He says, fix our eyes not on what is, un what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The promise of this passage is that if we fix our eyes on what is unseen on the eternal glory of God, then we will have what is required for us to travel through the wasteland and know his streams of living water. I've been in a, a couple of um, situations this, this week, these past couple of weeks, different, different things that have happened, and, it, and they just made me question, this question's been going around in my head about whether my perspective on faith has gotten too small. There have been some moments when I've been reminded of things I've seen God do in the past or things I might have had faith for God to do that feels like I've maybe put it a little bit to one side. And I feel like the challenge from God is, is will we let him enlarge our faith? Will we look out on the world with the eyes of eternity and see a God who brings good out of suffering, who redeems so that even death becomes resurrection, or have our eyes gotten a little small? There's an image um, in the Old Testament uh, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, when um, Ezekiel records a vision he has of a valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel writes, The Spirit of the Lord set me in the middle of a valley full of dry bones, and he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. The Lord said, 
Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And this is what Ezekiel saw happen. Bones came together, flesh and tendons appeared, but there was still no breath. Then the Lord said, prophesy to the breath. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to their life and stood up on their feet. And this is a vision, it's a prophecy, and it's, it's, it's a number of different things. It's a promise of the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the Israelite community after the Babylonian exile. It's also a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus, when death itself is conquered and new breath fills the broken body of Jesus. And it's the promise of the ark of redemption that we are living in. All that is dead and broken... All that is dry and forsaken will have new life breathed into it. All that is lost will be restored. All tears wiped away. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And into that total hopelessness of dry, bleached bones, that into those places in our life that feel filled with only despair and hopelessness, Jesus is speaking new life. And Ezekiel is commanded to do something that seems pointless, to prophesy over bones. And the promise is, I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. And that word breath there is the Hebrew word rak, which is the same word that we translate as the Holy Spirit. Because this is one other thing, this vision. It is a picture of the church. A community of people knitted together, joined and made alive by the Holy Spirit at work within us. And so the question I'm asking myself and the one I want to pose to you today is this. Do you believe that God can raise dry bones to life? We are broken vessels, jars of clay out of which the light of Christ is shining We are living in a world and surrounded by people caught up in pain and suffering, brokenness, a valley of dry bones. And we are invited to stand along with Ezekiel and prophesy the breath of the Holy Spirit. Howard um, Thurman was an American civil rights activist and theologian, and he he wrote at length about the the tragic history of slavery in the United States. And one of the things he did uh, a lot about was he researched the communities of the enslaved, especially their relationship to faith um, and the songs that were written at that time. And he wrote um, this. The facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. But it also taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material, out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. The center of focus was beyond themselves in a God who was a companion to them in their miseries, even as he enabled them to transcend their miseries. And this is good news. 
human beings are hope-shaped. Our beliefs about our future, our sense of hope, shape and control the way that we live now. I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of so many others, that hope is the beating heart. It's the thing that keeps us breathing when we feel desperate. It's what keeps us praying when God feels far off. It's what keeps us believing when it seems as if our prayers are going unanswered. It's what means, it's what enables us to stand with Paul and say we, we are pressed down on every side, but not crushed. We are broken, but not destroyed. We are shards of pottery on the floor being renewed in the hands of Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint because it is founded upon the love of God that is being poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. And the living water that we are being invited into today is a promise that the light always shines brighter than the darkness. It's a promise that our hope will not disappoint us because our hope is founded on Jesus. And the challenge for us is to let God enlarge our vision. Where are we looking? Fixing our eyes on him and on things eternal to run after surrender and dependency on Jesus. And the invitation is to be met in the place of drought. When we feel like we are nothing but broken pieces of pottery on the floor. And in that place to know the refreshing that comes from an encounter with the living water.